The scripture reading for this morning is taken from 1 Samuel chapter 6. We'll be reading 1 Samuel chapter 6 to 7 verse 1. And you'll be able to find that on page 316 of your pew Bible. We read there, Now the ark of the Lord was in the country of the Philistines seven months. And the Philistines called for the priests and the diviners, saying, What shall we do with the ark of the Lord? Tell us how we should send it to its place. So they said, If you send away the ark of the God of Israel, do not send it empty, but by all means return it to him with a trespass offering. Then you will be healed, and it will be known to you why his hand is not removed from you. Then they said, What is the trespass offering which we shall return to him? They answered, Five golden tumors and five golden rats, according to the number of the lords of the Philistines. For the same plague was on all of you and on your lords. Therefore, you shall make images of your tumors and images of your rats that ravage the land, and you shall give glory to the God of Israel. Perhaps he will lighten his hand from you, from your gods, and from your land. Why then do you harden your hearts as the Egyptians and Pharaoh hardened their hearts? When he did mighty things among them, did they not let the people go so that they might depart? Now therefore, make a new cart. Take two milk cows, which have never been yoked, and hitch the cows to the cart, and take their calves home away from them. Then take the ark of the Lord and set it on the cart, and put the articles of gold which you are returning to him as a trespass offering in a chest by its side. Then send it away and let it go. And watch, if it goes up the road to its own territory, to Beth Shemesh, then he has done us this great evil. But if not, then we shall know that it is not his hand that struck us. It happened to us by chance. Then the men did so. They took two milk cows and hitched them to the cart and shut up their calves at home. Then they sent the ark of the Lord on the cart and the chest with the gold rats and the images of their tumors. Then the cows headed straight for the road to Beth Shemesh, and they went along the highway lowing as they went and did not turn aside to the right hand or to the left. And the lords of the Philistines went after them to the border of Beth Shemesh. Now the people of Beth Shemesh were reaping their wheat harvest in the valley, And they lifted their eyes and saw the ark and rejoiced to see it. Then the cart came into the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh and stood there. A large stone was there. So they split the wood of the the cart and offered the cows as a burnt offering to the Lord. The Levites took down the ark of the Lord and the chest that was with it, in which were the articles of gold, and put them on the large stone. Then the men of Beth Shemesh offered burnt offerings and made sacrifices the same day to the Lord. So when the five lords of the Philistines had seen it, they returned to Ekron the same day. These are the gold tumors which the Philistines returned as a trespass offering to the Lord. One for Ashdod, one for Gaza, one for Ashkelon, one for Gath, one for Ekron. And the golden rats, according to the number of all the cities of the Philistines, belonging to the five lords, both fortified cities and country villages, even as far as the large stone of Abel, on which they set the ark of the Lord, 
which stone remains to this day in the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh. Then he struck the men of Beth Shemesh because they had looked into the ark of the Lord. He struck 50,070 men of the people. And the people lamented because the Lord had struck the people with a great slaughter. And the men of Beth Shemesh said, Who is able to stand before this holy Lord God? And to whom shall it go up from us? So they sent messengers to the inhabitants of Kiriath-Jairim, saying, The Philistines have brought back the ark of the Lord. Come down and take it up with you. Then the men of Kiriath-Jairim came and took the ark of the Lord and brought it into the house of Abinadab on the hill and consecrated Eliezer his son to keep the ark of the Lord. So far the word of God. The focus of the sermon for this morning will be on the first half of verse 20. And the men of Beth Shemesh said, Who is able to stand before this holy Lord God? Beloved congregation of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, those of you looking at our passage today, whether you've been following along for the last number of months as we've been working our way through Samuel, or whether you're simply familiar with what has taken place in the last few chapters, may remember that Israel had just faced a defeat. More than seven months ago, they had faced the Philistines and come into conflict with them, and their fighting force had fallen into pieces before the might of the Philistines. But instead of humbling themselves before God, they immediately tried to use the ark of God as a weapon. They tried to force the hand of God to come to their aid instead of worshiping Him reverently with holy fear and removing sin from their lives before trying to head out to battle again. And so the Lord let the ark be captured. He did this to teach His people that their God was not a God to be used or manipulated. And seeing the ark being carried off by the Philistines, the Israelites were brought to the stark realization that they had lost their feeling of the presence of God. It had led the wife of Phinehas, one of the corrupt members of the priesthood, to name her child Ichabod, meaning no glory, because God, the glory of Israel, had departed. But this did not mean that God was not at work for His people and for His glory. Even while Israel had lost sight of who God was to them, even while the priesthood had become so corrupt that they were causing the people of Israel to despise the sacrifices of the Lord, still the Lord worked for His own glory. Still the Lord made His name known among the nations. And in doing so, He helped His people as undeserving as they were. The Lord fought for His own people for the sake of His glory. And now today we see the results of that fight. And we see it twofold. First in the response of the Philistines and then in the response of the Israelites. And we'll see this under the following theme and points. Who is able to stand before this holy Lord God? We'll see first of all not the enemies of God. 
Second, not the people of God. And third, only those made righteous by God. Not the enemies of God, not the people of God, only those made righteous by God. Now the recognition of the power of the Lord by the Philistines comes fast and furious in the chapter before our passage. First, God had humiliated their own God, their false idol, in his own temple. He had done this by bringing him crashing down on his face in the presence of the ark. After this, he struck the city of Ashdod with plagues of mice and tumors. In terror, they sent the ark away to the next Philistine city, Gath, and then after that to Ekron. For seven months, the ark was in the nation of Philistia, and God brought this entire nation of warriors down to its knees. He humbled them. At their wit's end, the Philistines called up their priests and diviners to see what could be done. Priests were involved with leading the worship of the false god Dagon. The diviners were men who tried to gain insight into a question or a situation by way of occultic processes or rituals. These often involved interpreting omens. And because of the fact that it was dabbling in spiritual forces, which in the ancient world was often thought to be gods, but which God himself had pointed out were actually demons, God had forbidden Israel from practicing it. But that didn't mean that the nations around weren't involved with it. God had specifically highlighted this for Israel in Deuteronomy 18. Following that up with, For all who do these things are an abomination to the Lord. And because of these abominations, the Lord your God drives them out before you. So it was something that brought judgment down on them. But even wicked men can have an inkling of the truth if God allows them to. And these men decide to put forward a test. The first test is to appease the Lord, who has made them a specific target for his wrath. The second test is a just-in-case to make absolutely sure that it's the Lord who is behind it. They figure with the disasters that they have a pretty good idea of what's going on, but they want to make absolutely sure, just in case it's a big coincidence and it's not from the Lord. Perhaps having the ark around just happened to occur at the same time. Perhaps it was all by chance. They weren't going to take chances. They want all their bases covered. And so they collect two milk cows. These would have been cows which wouldn't know the feeling of a yoke meant for pulling a cart or for pulling a plow. They find themselves a new cart, one which hasn't been put to secular, to worldly use yet. And they put the ark on that to make even more certain that it's the Lord who's behind it. They keep the calves of these cows at home. If milk cows can suddenly learn how to pull a cart like a team when they've never done it before, and if they can leave their hungry calves behind, then there's something truly special happening. But to make absolutely sure that the God of Israel is appeased, if it truly does turn out to be the God of Israel, they make an offering of five gold tumors and five gold mice. 
the combination of giving him the gold offerings and sending his ark home should be enough, the diviners believe. They give these gold figures as a trespass offering, we read, confessing that they have sinned against the Lord, that they have sinned against the God of Israel by doing what they had done to his ark. It all seems to be pretty straightforward, doesn't it? Don't the people of Philistia seem to be going through the right motions with their offerings here? But notice what they're doing. They've been exposed to the power of the true God. Their own gods have been brought low before him. And Yahweh, the God of Israel, has been shown to be the God who has dominion over all. Yet they're not humbling themselves before God. They're not recognizing him as the all-powerful creator of the universe who has dominion even over their world, over their nation, and over their gods. Instead, they show that they ultimately wanted just to get God off their backs. They wanted him to leave them alone. And that's the picture of so many in our world today, isn't it? So many people in our day and age say, if there is a God, I just want him to leave me alone. They might take steps to appease him, do a good thing here or there, especially if they feel they've done something bad. But ultimately, they just want him to leave them alone. They don't want to be confronted by a God who is truly holy. And when the one who is truly holy comes to them, it's easier to give him a few gifts to maybe appease him and then send him out the door, send him on his way. In answer to the question, who is able to stand before this holy Lord God, the Philistines said, not us. We'll do what's necessary to get him off our backs, but we can't handle a God like this. And so they sent him away. This is the worldly way of looking at God and of looking at his holiness and of looking at sin. But brothers and sisters, let it not be ours. Let us be sensitive to sin and not look at our sin in the way of the world. Let us not be slow to deal with it and only want to get God off our backs, but let us approach Him with true humility and honor Him as the God who rules over all our lives. And this brings us to our second point, the recognition of the Israelites. The Israelites, too, faced the holiness of God. And at first for them, it was a reason for joy. These plagues had been going on over the border for seven months, so the Israelites would most certainly have heard rumors about them. But rumors were all that they had heard. The season for war had gone by, crops which had been planted had grown, and now they were ready for harvest. We know from Joshua 10 that Beth Shemesh was a border town, so rumors of unrest next door would have made them nervous. It's right in the neighborhood for them. They'd be asking the question, what's the Lord doing? But they were carrying on with their day-to-day lives. Now, when the people of the town of Beth Shemesh were out in the fields harvesting, 
enjoying much better yields than their neighbors next door, whose crops had been devastated by plagues of mice. They lifted their eyes up from the harvest, up from the fields, and what did they see? The Ark of the Covenant coming down to them. They rejoiced. And of course they rejoiced. The return of the Ark to them was a sign of the return of God's favor to them. It was a sign to them that God had dealt with their enemies and that he was returning to them. And this was a reason for celebration. They broke the cart into pieces and used it to start a fire. And in the hours that followed, they offered two cows as a sacrifice to the Lord their God. And it went well. It wasn't a problem that they sacrificed. Beth Shemesh was not just a border town. We read in Joshua 21, verses 13 to 18, that it was also one in the list of priestly towns. And so when it says that the people of Beth Shemesh sacrificed, there were many families of priests who had family heads that could be involved with sacrificing. In this, there was nothing inappropriate happening. They were doing everything according to the will of God. But then things took a turn for the worse. Despite what had happened to the sons of Eli in previous chapters, despite the fact that they had lost their lives because they didn't recognize or honor God as holy and worthy of worship, the people still sinned. We read that the men from the town looked into the ark of God and not just a few of them. You get the picture here that many of them looked into the ark. They should have known that they couldn't deal with God in this way. In fact, they did know this was, after all, a priestly town. They did, after all, know the history. But what was it that they did? They forgot the holiness of God, but what does it what does that actually mean? God's holiness means that God is separate. He's set above all that is created. He is pure and righteous. And His purity and righteousness is so great that it affects everything that comes into contact with Him. All things are regarded as holy because of their connection with God. Holy ground when God appears. Holy Sabbath the holy place of the tabernacle, a holy ark. There were poles attached to the Ark of the Covenant so that even the priests who were tasked to move the ark from one place to another wouldn't touch it. It was too holy for their touch, and so they were meant to carry it by these poles. Whenever they came to a stop, it was placed in the Holy of Holies, the innermost room of the tabernacle, and there it would remain. Only the high priest was allowed to go into that room after that. And that only once a year on the Day of Atonement to sprinkle blood seven times on the mercy seat in payment for the sins of the entire nation. And even then when that was happening, a cloud of incense was to be there, hiding most of the mercy seat from sight. And we read from the 
We read from uh, different pieces in Jewish literature that often there was a rope tied around the ankle of the high priest just in case he hadn't purified himself properly and he died in the most holy place in the presence of God. That way the attending priests could pull him out without entering in themselves. All of this was to remind Israel of the words that were later spoken by the prophet Habakkuk in chapter 1, verse 13 of his book. Your eyes are too pure to tolerate evil, and you cannot look on what is wrong. Even for the people of God, this was true. They couldn't stand before God just because they counted themselves people of God. Just because they were born into that family, the same is true of us today too. Just being part of the people of God, being a member of this covenant people in itself is not enough. Sinful man cannot stand in the presence of God except by the mercy of of God, which allowed for a way to be made clear by the purifying blood of sacrifices. In the Old Testament, this was done through the sacrificing of animals. And this pointed ahead in itself to the purifying blood of the one sacrifice of Jesus Christ. But the men of Beth Shemesh they didn't approach God by looking to Him through the mercy of what He offered to them. Instead, they removed the mercy seat. They treated lightly the righteousness and pure, terrifying holiness and the goodness of God. They took away that symbol of God's restraining hand against the iniquity of His people just to satisfy their own curiosity. They knew what was going on. They knew exactly how inappropriate their actions were. And they knew what kind of a God they were dealing with. Had He not brought down plagues and death on their enemies for the last seven months? They should have known what would happen. And yet, they did it. And now the people lamented because God had struck them with a great slaughter. It caused them to tremble in fear. Now, finally now, they understood God's holiness. They asked the big question of our passage today, who is able to stand before this holy God? And they were not sure of the answer. It filled them with fear, as it would us if we didn't know the answer either. They said, clearly of ourselves, we can't stand before this Lord God. Send him away from us. Our God hasn't changed. He's still that holy and righteous God. He still can't stand the sight of sin. And yet we have an answer to that question, who is able to stand that even the people of Israel didn't. And that brings us to our third point. Only those made righteous by God can stand before Him. 
There's a psalm written by King David only a few decades after this event in the life of Samuel takes place, which voices this exact same question. Who may ascend into the hill of the Lord? Or who may stand in his holy place? The answer that comes is the one we sang as well before this service. He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul to an idol, nor sworn deceitfully, he shall receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Who would be able to fill that kind of a requirement? We know that no one truly had clean hands and a pure heart. No one is righteous, no, not one, the Bible declares. Does this mean that no one can stand? The response of the people of Israel after this event shows that they once again begin to grasp the message that the Lord is sending them. They begin to grasp that message. Certainly, they don't want to handle the ark longer than necessary, and therefore they don't bring it back all the way to Shiloh, but they do arrange for a house of worship for it, and they consecrate some men as priests to look after the ark of God. You see, no one can stand in the presence of the Lord unless they come before him in the way that he provides. No one is righteous, no, not one. But God arranged for a way to bridge that gap. He arranged that there could be men who were consecrated, made holy to be mediators in the Old Testament. And he arranged that their consecration would be acceptable for a time so that they could stand in his presence, so that they could be mediators. Chosen by God, priests who were consecrated were able to minister to the people. And through them, the people could ascend to the hill of God. They could offer sacrifices and know that they were seen as pure in the sight of God. You can see this most clearly reflected in the name of the man that they chose as priest. Eliezer, God has helped. What a contrast there is in their attitude now from the time when they first went to war. Prior to all of this taking place, Israel had scorned the sacrifices as nothing more than a gimmick to feed corrupt priests. And when they needed God's help, they went to war at a place named Ebenezer, Rock of Hell, taking the ark to try force God's hand to help them, choosing the place, taking the ark, everything to try make God help them. But now the ark is treated reverently under the priest named Eliezer. After long last, the Lord opens the way for the people to ascend his hill again, but rightly this time. With a properly consecrated priesthood and in the way that he desires, once again the people can come and worship. God has helped them over these past seven months in humbling the Philistine foe. He has helped them by restoring to them right worship. He restored right worship to those who honestly, repentantly, reverently, and humbly seek his face. He opened the way to be purified through the sacrifices. And now he has once again established himself as the help of Israel. The ark is once again in Israel, and now worship will pick up again. 
but rightly and truly this time. Who can ascend the hill of God? Those who humble themselves in worship of this God. Those who humble themselves before Him, recognizing their own sin, and come in the way that He calls them to Himself. Not taking Him lightly, not being unconcerned with the state of their own souls, but those who take His holiness seriously and recognize that they cannot come to Him unless He takes the first step in opening the way to them, unless He takes the first step in making them righteous. This truth is the very same for us today, beloved. You and I look here, we read this passage, and we're shocked by the numbers of people that have passed away. The number of people who are killed by the Lord. And we're left asking the same question, who can stand before such a holy God? Maybe you feel especially aware of your sins and shortcomings today. You haven't, your treat, you haven't treated your spouse right. You haven't treated your children in the way that God desires. Children, you haven't treated your parents right. Maybe you have sins of thought that you're dwelling on. Or big past sins of thought or action that just loom over you. Maybe you feel your failures time and time again and you've been trying to do things right and trying to do things right and you kept on falling short again and again. Who can stand before such a holy God? But God is gracious in this. Although you know that you cannot stand before God yourself, He's opened a way for you to stand before Him. He's opened that way through Jesus Christ. If we approach God lightly, if we play down our sin or think that we can address Him on our own terms, in our own strength, there is an arrogance there that we should think twice about. If we approach Him in ourselves, we're not approaching Him in the way that He desires. And we'll fall short, it's true. But if we truly do recognize our sins and shortcomings, we confess them and we repent for the Lord our God, if we accept what we've done as sin, and we look to Christ alone as our righteousness, we will be saved. Look back and examine yourselves. Do own these sins that weigh down on you. But recognize that you have sinned. And then look to your Savior who cleanses you, who makes you righteous. If you are a visitor today, and this is your first appeal to God, and I know there's a lot of visitors here, but particularly if you are a visitor here and this is your first appeal to God, or if you have always lived within the church but are only now coming to see the holiness of God, I urge you to recognize your need for Christ. 
recognize the holiness and purity of a God who can't stand the sight of sin. Recognize your inability to please Him yourself and then recognize that Christ alone can appease God for you. Who can stand before this holy Lord God? Only Christ. And so in the words of the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 20 to 21, we hear in Owen Sound Church as ambassadors of Christ, as though God were making an appeal through us, we beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. He made him who knew no sin, Jesus Christ, to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. God himself came down in flesh, came down incarnate and bore our sin. If we don't approach God through him, one look at the Lord God seals our doom. But if we do approach God through Christ, we have reason to rejoice. Because God not only sees us as pure and holy, but he loves us and he makes us holy. Christ alone stands before God in his holiness. Christ is our mercy seat, the one who dwells among us, the symbol of God's care for man. And through him, the veil into the innermost sanctuary of God is torn down, and we can enter the most holy place without fear. We can enter into the very presence of God without fear. And so, visitor, brother, sister, let us seek him. Who can stand before this holy God? In Christ, you can. And you do. And you shall. You shall, in the words of Psalm 24, receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of your salvation. In Christ you stand perfected before God, and in Christ you stand before him without fear. Amen.